And now, on with the show. Hey everyone, welcome to... We're watching here, we're watching here. This is Opinionated Movie Talk with Chris and Perry. My name is Chris Williams. With me, he is the John Lithgow and my Brendan Fraser, Perry Seibert. I'll take that. I don't. I, have I Oscar, knew you would. I'll take that. Yes, I, <laughs> <laughs> I knew you would. Thank, uh, you, thank you for that. How you doing today, Perry? I am well. We've seen the most important three and a half hours of the year. Of course, I'm good. I can't yeah. wait to talk about this with you. Well, we're not talking about the Taylor Swift movie today, though, are we? No, not not in any detail. <laughs> I, I'm very excited, too. Today, we are going to be talking about Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, I'm very excited about that. Uh, I'm really excited that it is. I'm not much of a horror movie fan, but uh, it is horror movie season. And it's the one time of the year where I tend to indulge in that a bit. So I'm having some fun with that. Do you got? Do you get into that at all? During you're, I, you're not a big horror movie guy. I'm not a big horror movie guy, but yeah, I'll usually, you know, I will, I will. I will do my best to catch up on things I have never seen before in the genre okay. in the month of October, generally speaking. And that's actually the subject of one of my what I've been watchings. Cool. Let's jump right into that. Uh, we're going to okay. do our what we've been watching. Perry, go ahead and kick us off. So I have. Uh, I, I, yes, I, I just. Drawn to horror films. I don't think it's a disreputable genre. I don't. There is no judgment here. And I've certainly had a lot of friends over the years who are horror movie aficionados. Uh, one of the genres I have never dipped my toe into is the Italian giallo movies. I know the I know the famous titles. I know the directors. I've never dipped my toe in this. And lo and behold, last month Criterion showed up with a uh, a brand new spanking souped up director's cut version of Dario Argento's Suspiria, nice. which I had never seen. I've seen the remake, but I had never seen the original. And I thought. All right, well, now is the time to do that. And I will tell you, last Saturday morning, I think Saturday morning, I woke up uh, like 6 o'clock and everybody was still asleep. And so I thought, I think they're going to stay asleep. I watched Suspiria at like 6.30 in the morning. It's the new version of Saturday cartoons. And exactly, exactly. And uh, boy, Chris, did I have a great time with Suspiria. <laughs> I, I get it now. I understand like all the American films, which I was kind of familiar with that are supposedly, you know, stealing from the Jello and, and it's, it's various uh, visual tropes. Uh, boy, no, Americans don't do this right. <laughs> this, this, the Italians know how to do this. This is, it is a, a, a bright and garish and wonderfully entertaining visual and audio experience. That's what it is. Like it's, uh, it's 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 about a an American dancer who goes to study at a famous dance studio, and uh, lo and behold, it turns out it's just a front for a giant coven of witches, and uh, that is not spoiling anything, even though you don't really know this for sure till like nearly the end of the movie. It doesn't matter. It's not about the plot. <laughs> it's about these glorious use of color, these outstandingly uh, 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 unique editing sequences i i love i just love the way the film's made they are fun to just have on and stare at and listen to the sound design's excellent uh in keeping with the theme of the show i know that scorsese has said that those are the movies that if he could just have them on around him all the time just so that he could glance up every once in a while and watch a few minutes of them this is what he this is what he would do that they are just so much fun and they're so creative and they really are it is um it's kind of a it, it it is it puts the lie to like Friday the Thirteenth, which is supposed to be the the film that most obvious the American film that most closely adheres to what the Giallo films were trying to do. Uh, it's such a better film than Friday the Thirteenth. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on, that's ninety percent of all films, but it's well, that's yes, that's true. But talk about falling so far short of what your supposed inspiration <laughs> yeah. is. This is a. This is a, uh, a a pallbearer to the graduates. No, sorry, uh, not not the pallbearer. I should go uh, Garden State. This is Garden State to the graduate kind of level of, <laughs> ooh, you have missed the bullseye by a wide margin. Did you watch any of the other Criterion Giallos, or? 
I haven't. I haven't yet. Okay. I j- literally just watched this period. I enjoyed it tremendously. And hopefully I'll throw another one or two on before I go. Away. Although the pre-code horror films are sitting there. And those are always fun. I haven't seen Freaks in a very long time. I'm due for a rewatch. So who knows what I'll get to while the rest of the month happens. Chris, uh, what have you been watching? Well, not Suspiria. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've been <laughs> I've been wasting my Halloween season watching Stephen King adaptations, which unless <laughs> unless you are and not even the good ones, not like like, you know, I might do The Shining later because it's been a a while since i've seen that but like i've been doing like maximum overdrive and silver Ooh, bullet and, yeah, and you are, so, I, what is what is that i hear oh i believe it's the scraping of a bottom of a barrel yes indeed. oh it is it is the shuffling of sentient cocaine to watch maximum <laughs> overdrive it is so yes. but i'm not going to talk about one of those um, because i've written about plenty of them um but i had a unique experience this has only happened a few times where I've put on a movie thinking I'm catching up with it for the first time in ages. And then about five, 10 minutes in, I realize, oh, I thought I'd seen this. I've never seen this before. Um, so I've been trying to catch up with some older classic ho- uh, horror movies. So I had seen The Exorcist before. I watched that uh, in advance of the new one, which, you know, we don't need to talk about the new Exorcist. But uh <laughs> I, I then wanted to, uh, to follow it up with Rosemary's Baby, which oh. I know I had read the book because I, I have a distinct memory. It's the rare book where I got to a passage and it actually caused a jump scare and I threw the book across the room. <laughs> um, and that was about 20 years ago. And I assumed I thought I had seen the movie. Like I've seen enough clips from it. I've read enough about it where I'm like, oh, I've seen Rosemary's Baby and I had not seen Rosemary's Baby. So I sat down um, a few weeks ago and watched it and it was not what I expected. It, it's it's a much different experience than the book, which actually is a nice tie in to the movie we're going to be talking about in a little bit as well. Um, from what I remember, Ira Levin's book is very much a traditional suspense piece that kind of keeps everything at arm's length. You don't know what's happening until the final passages. That's my memory of the book. Like, you know, something's off, but you don't really get the depth of how Rosemary's being manipulated or who's doing it. The movie's pretty upfront about that from the start. Um, And I think I was expecting something that was like nonstop scares. And it's not that it's a very slow burn. um, That's very open about the fact that her neighbors and her husband are controlling her and we don't really know why, but the chanting next door kind of clues us in. Um, And it's really this really fascinating movie about gaslighting and domestic conformity and your neighbors trying to manipulate you into a certain space. And it's got moments that are scary. Like there's, there's one big sequence in the movie that I thought was scary. It was very surreal and terrifying. But there's so much of this that is almost black humor as well. It's a very funny. Ruth Gordon is hilarious in this movie. Yes. Um, it, It's almost a satire of nosy neighbors and gossips. And yet there's this feeling of just paranoia lurking under everything. And the affair is so good. Um, and, and when it gets to its final reveal, which, you know, what we're 50 years past this movie more than that like when you learn that her baby is going to be satan's son it is almost underplayed to the point where it's it's kind of banal like it's just a bunch of old people saying hail satan and then one lady like spits out i'll kill you milk or no milk but the way she says it is so matter-of-factly that i laughed really hard um i really liked this this is a such a well-done movie i we don't talk a lot about Roman Polanski because issues, but um, it, it's so well made. Uh, just, I, I don't I really liked this one uh, for reasons I didn't expect to like it for. Uh, I, so I, there was a time in my life when I would have called Roman Polanski the second greatest living director. And I'm not going to fight if someone does. I agree. I understand there are issues, uh, but the man was He's just remarkably talented. He mm. is an incredible filmmaker. And this is, yeah, this is one of the two or three best of his films. Rosemary's Baby is, oh, I'm so glad you saw it. <laughs> I'm 
so it's, jealous you got to experience it kind of for the first time. It's it, it, you're right. It doesn't definitely matter for the first time, but that's what the twist is. It's not about the twist. It's not about the reveal. It is, it is that feeling of utter dread, which is what Polanski does better than anybody yeah. that hangs over you for the entire movie. Uh, which for me, I think the reason the film plays still to this day is I, you, I, you're right to locate it as, you know, this interesting little satire about social pressure and about uh, nosy neighbors. But this is about the fear of pregnancy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is about the fear of pregnancy. And guess what? That's not a topic that films go near. They, <laughs> that's, that's not fun. There's no way to do that lightly. <laughs> there's, there's no way to make that appealing. But Polanski did. Yeah. <laughs> Polanski made a horror film about being pregnant. That's that, that, that women respond to, uh, rightfully so. Oh, I love Rosemary's Baby. <laughs> it's very good. I love Rosemary's Baby. It's very interesting revisiting that and The Exorcist really close together because – I think Rosemary's Baby is a much better film than The Exorcist. Um, Like, I think The Exorcist is scary in the parts that aren't supposed to be scary. Uh, I don't I don't think any of the overt demonic stuff is very scary at all. But uh, the feeling of like the 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 struggle of faith in that really affects me. But Exorcist has this hold like 50 years later, probably because of those, you know, very big grandiose scenes where people still talk about the exorcist like you know teenagers today are so have you seen the exorcist i don't hear as many people talk about rosemary's baby probably because it is a slower burn but oh my gosh that is that is the better movie and i think that is actually the scarier movie i remember a premiere magazine piece in the mid 90s talking about how that was the film that everybody running a studio was trying to find like they thought there there was a gap in the market where there was a place to make a very scary uh adult for lack of a better phrase uh horror film that dealt with something real and the film that stepped up and filled that void was supposedly seven and i think they're very they're very good films to watch as a double feature i think they have a lot in common with each other that's very interesting yeah i might have to try that harry i know you have another one you were going to talk about what else have you been watching i do i had an experience i've had very very few times in my life where uh, uh, I went to see a movie in the theater that I had seen easily 10, if not 15 times on video uh, and DVD over the years, but I had never seen it on a big screen. And uh, uh, it, it was, it's, it's, it's the re-release of Jonathan Demme's Talking Heads concert film, Stop Making Sense. I've heard a lot of people talk about this. Which, if you have never seen it, by all means, see it in any format. <laughs> It's it really is the greatest concert film ever made because there's no backstory. There's no talking head interviews with the band. It is just a concert film for your enjoyment and filmed beautifully and designed by David Byrne to work both on stage for the audience viewing the performance and for and designed so that the audience in the movie theater can enjoy it as well. Uh, It famously starts with David Byrne walking out with just a tape deck uh, and pressing play saying, Hey, I got something. I have a, I think I have a tape I want to play for you. He hits play. And this very minimalist, just a hair more than a click track starts playing and he's got an acoustic guitar and he performs psycho killer. And then, and the, and behind him on the stage is like a bare stage. And I don't mean that it's like a black backdrop. I mean, you see like the giant steps going up the back way behind him in the stage. There's something that's going to be built there. And then uh, that song ends and you see uh, you see crew members starting to move things into place. And Tina Weymouth, the bass player of the band, comes out. The two of them perform a song. And then some more stuff comes out. And Chris Franz, Tina's husband, and the drummer in the band joins them. And they play a song. And then Jerry Harrison comes out, who was the fourth member of the band to join. And they all play a song together. And then the rest of the touring band comes out. And uh, they're all given equal billing in the opening credits, <laughs> they list everybody in the band. Uh, this and it, it, you know, what starts with a guy alone on stage uh, <laughs> talking about <laughs> feeling as if he's a psychotic killer ends with this joyous party of 
men and women and white people and black people performing the most spectacular music you will ever if you don't start moving to this live rendition of burning down the house you're not alive the uh i uh, the talking heads were arguably the greatest american band ever i'm not saying they are but i don't mind if you think they are uh and jonathan demi uh had very few equals at this point in his life he was one of the great american directors of the 70s and 80s and made his most memorable film in 1991. Uh, and I, 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 I beseech anyone to race out as long as that, uh, as long as this new version, or not new version, this very beautifully restored version of Stop Making Sense is playing near you. Go see it. So double feature it with the Eras tour. Exactly. Just do, okay. do five hours of live concert footage. And that's all you do, but see Eras first. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm not. With Stop Making Sense. I'm not as familiar with the talking heads. They were a little before my time. Would I still get something out of this? Yes. Okay. You, you, you okay. There's two ways to answer this. I know you. <laughs> so you, Chris Williams, as well as I know you, me being me. Yes. Because this really is a visually and great movie. Like each of the songs, the lighting design is very different for each of them. It's not like they just plunk the camera down in the third row center and you watch it. The camera is up on stage with people. There's a scene in like the, I think it's early on, I think in the run of Cheers where there's a, there's, I can't remember if it's a scene or a runner for the episode where they're debating what the sweatiest movie of all time is. I think Cool (laughs) Hand Luke wins. This is up there. You are so (laughs) close to these performers. You see them sweating throughout and it's joyous. They are, they are, having a joyous time on stage. It's not, it's not this grand effort showing you how hard this is and how tough it is to be a rock star. It looks like the greatest time of your life. (laughs) Um, And yet it's this full immersive physical experience. It makes the music physical, which is really great. And I don't know of any other film that's done that to that level. Not even uh, the last waltz, which I think is the other great concert film. And even that's more of a documentary than a concert. Uh, uh, that film's great, but boy, Stop Making Sense is is like nothing else. I, it really is a spectacular movie. So happy to see it on a large screen. I will have to see if I can still track that down, if it's still playing somewhere near me. Go for it. Go for it. it. It's got to be in Ann Arbor, I would think. It was still playing at my local multiplex a couple weeks ago. Okay. That's how happy I was. It's not just at the Michigan. It is actually at my multiplex. I was like, yes, nice. <laughs> you can have my money. Take my money, please. <laughs> For showing Jonathan Demi stop making sense. Uh, I can put that AMC Stubbs list to great use. There you go. Um, well, I have one more movie, and it's a newer one, but there's a little connection in that it's also music related. I had the opportunity to see John Carney's new film, Flora and Son, a few weeks ago. Nice. Uh, this is an Apple TV Plus movie, but I was uh, very happy that I had the opportunity to see it on the big screen. I just much prefer that. Um so this stars Eve Hewson, who is Bono's daughter, and she is this kind of kind of single mother, bit of a screw up living in Dublin, this really ratty side of Dublin. Um, she has a teenage son who she just does not get along with at all. She regularly like trolls the bars, brings home men, forgets to send her son to school. Um And then one day she finds a guitar, thinks it'll make a good gift for her son. He doesn't want it. He's more involved in hip hop. And she decides she's going to take lessons. So she takes lessons from an online guitar tutor uh, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And if you've seen a if you've seen a John Carney movie before, you can probably guess that music will heal people and they'll find their voice by going deeper into music. That's exactly what this movie is. Um, We've talked before. I adore Once and Sing Street. Um, This isn't quite as good, but it's about on the same level as Begin Again, which I really like. Um, You know, this this is him doing what he does very well. This is a movie about broken people trying to get along, trying to find a connection. Music provides that. Um, I think the relationship between Flora and her son is is really the best part of the movie. It's kind of raw. It's a kind of ugly relationship, but they they kind of find this common ground because he loves hip hop and she loves making money, you know, making music on her guitar. And that's really the highlight of the movie. Um, 
if you've seen one of John Carney's movies, you can see the bones of his formula in the screenplay a, a little bit more than maybe some of his others. I don't know if the humor works as well in some of the others, but it's still just, it's very warm hearted. And I don't think anyone visually knows how to show music's impact on someone better than John Carney. There is, there's a sequence where Flora watches Joni Mitchell on her laptop and it is the high point in the movie. And that's something that shouldn't work. Watching a musician, watching an actor, watch a musician on their laptop shouldn't be riveting. <laughs> but it really is. It, of course, builds to a big performance. That's a lot of fun. Uh, there's a romance, but, you know, it, it, it's the type of the romance he does where maybe that's not the main thing. Um it's funny. It's light. It's enjoyable. I had a really good time with this. I know you like John Carney. Have you gotten around to this one yet? I like John Carney. I have not seen this one yet. Okay. And I, I will get to it. I, yeah, I, he, he is the word I want to, <laughs> it sounds again, it sounds so diminishing. He's reliable. Yeah. Like, you know, he's, I know what he's going to talk about. I know what he's going to deal with. It is always uh, somewhat interesting to see how he's going to put together the pieces this time around. Uh, as someone who uh, prefers actors to musicians, generally speaking, I like to watch actors act more than I like watching musicians musician. Uh, there's a reason I kind of like Begin Again the most of all his movies, because mm-hmm. that's the one that stars actors. <laughs> that's the one he didn't rely on ringers of uh, professional musicians. Uh, but that's not a knock on any of them. They're all incredibly... And, and once is... Once is spectacular. Once, once is the exception to so all this. Yes. Like that's that's just you. You captured lightning in a bottle. Congratulations! You made this beautiful movie that is uh, so easy to crush with overpraise. Like, you, like, like I, I, I always fear that once is oversold to somebody who's never seen it before because mm-hmm. it's so small and so precious and so delicate, and it's that's what it is. Just put this very beautiful thing in your hands and enjoy it <laughs> and you'll feel better about the world and your life. Uh, and then yes, uh, that yes. Love Carney's work. You, you should check this out then it is on Apple TV plus. Although it is one of those things where if it wasn't for Apple TV, I don't know this movie would be getting out to a large audience these days. So I'm thankful that Apple decides to put the money in this, put it on their screener it's a movie that played so well in the theater, though. It is one of those ones where it's just, yeah. it was a nice, warm experience to sit in a packed theater for the screening and uh, and just, you know, laugh with people. Like, I miss all the movies that are coming out lately. Comedies seem to be tanking the most in theaters, and I hate that because there is nothing more fun than um, than laughing with a bunch of people in theaters. Going to go on a little digression here because it's a movie you talked about last time, but I finally caught up with Strays, um, uh-huh. which isn't great, but I really wish I had seen that in a packed theater. Like, I think I would have laughed about 10 times harder if I was with other people um, instead of watching it on the couch with my dog, which yeah. is one of the dogs look like my dog. So perfect. Perfect. <laughs> that's, that's its own level, special level of experience. That's, yes. that, don't discount that. Yes, the Jamie Foxx dog looks a lot like my dog. So good to know. Yeah, good to know. So kept my dog away from the couch after that. So smart, yeah. very smart. <laughs> well, Perry, I think it's time to move on to the main event. Um, we actually had a something that has been happening more regularly recently. We got to see the movie at the same time uh, in we the same did. Uh, we saw Killers of the Flower Moon last week. Uh, it opens in wide release uh, on October 20th, and then it will eventually come to Apple TV Plus uh, for those who don't want to sit there for its length. But um, yeah, Perry, you you, you, you know, the, genuinely, that's the case anyway. Yes. Um, Perry, do you want to kick us off? You are our Scorsese obsessive here. So why don't you why don't you lead us into what this is all about and your uh, your first impressions on this movie? Uh, Killers of the Flower Moon is an adaptation of the nonfiction book of the same name that is uh, tells the tale of the murder of a series of Osage uh, tribe members orchestrated by someone. Uh, in order to more than likely gain control of their vast reserves of land that had oil underneath it. Uh, The film, I love the opening of the movie. I'm going to say I love the film so much today. I love the opening of the movie where we have those wonderful sort of pseudo newsreels that explain 
Mm -hmm. uh, why the Osage are so rich and how rich they are, uh, which sets up us meeting the character played by Leonardo DiCaprio, who is home from World War One, uh, playing it's DiCaprio playing um, Grizzled, which I don't remember ever seeing him really play before, and and it 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 still took me most of the three and a half hours to get used to that the the fake teeth and the the frowny mouth the entire time um that said it's a fine performance uh uh he comes to visit his uncle played by robert de niro who is a rancher who has learned to live among the osage they let him he he, he has land among them and he is very much a part of the osage community uh and uh, he hires his nephew and eventually the nephew starts a relationship with one of the women in town who is uh, has a, 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 a let's just call it a good parcel of land that <laughs> that's quite valuable to a great many people. Uh, and we watch the two of them spark and fall in love. And we wonder whether or not that that's uh, if how genuine all of this is. Uh, because there are machinations afoot <laughs> to get uh, to get to get things from her, uh, and I don't want to say much more than that at this point about the plot of the movie. But you would say you liked it, I'm guessing. So I had this reaction to it. Mm-hmm. I I think it's I think it's very good. I was never not interested in what was happening. It is a film that is not fun. No. There is no. no fun in this movie. That's not to say there aren't some laughs. There are some funny moments for sure, and there's some very sweet moments. But this is this is serious. I don't want to even say it's important. This is serious. Um you know, almost a silence level of serious, with mm-hmm. the difference being that serious is uh silence is completely constructed in a way to not be pleasurable. Like silence is yeah. a film that is that is supposed to be rigid and difficult to sit through. It is a film you must wrestle with. This goes down easy. It is not hard to watch this movie in in those terms. In terms of you know a typical blockbuster, yes, it's a little harder because it's not it you know Wolf of Wall Street does its grandest to entertain you and then to remind you at the very end that if you were entertained by this, you're part of the problem, which is great. It's one of the reasons that's a brilliant movie. Uh, you know. I like that with these last three films, and I'll, I'll include Wolf in this as well, actually, with Silence, with The Irishman, and with this, Scorsese has um, gotten to the point where he does not feel the need to show off <laughs> in any way. He is truly trying to get down to the brass tacks of what it is he wants to talk about and say. And I found all of that, I didn't realize how strongly that was intended. Cause this is a movie that while I was watching it the first time, I thought Scorsese felt he had to make not one. He was compelled to make. There is a difference. This felt like a very cerebral decision on his behalf to say, I want to say this as opposed to Wolf, which does feel like something that was came from within this giant slap down of, of, of the worst of capitalism. Uh, but it does have the deliberativeness of silence and of the Irishman. Uh, but then there is this sequence in the last 10 minutes of the movie that make it abundantly clear how personal this is. Yeah. Uh, where he does, he manages to avoid one of the horriest tropes of this kind of movie. Uh, and at the same time delivers cinematically and verbally an explanation for why he wanted to do this. It takes a master director at the age of 80 to pull that off. No one's doing that. That's what makes this movie incredibly, this very good movie becomes incredibly special because the director understands how to tell you how he feels about what he has done. That's rare to the point of never happens. Yeah. I I, I mean, yeah. I'm trying to think of my segue because it would be so much more interesting if I could come in and say, I didn't like it. Right. Like that, that would be the sure. more interesting discussion. Sure. But that's not going to happen. That's here. not going to happen. Um, <laughs> so I was trying to think about my reaction to this. And one of the things I think is, is fascinating is I read the book for this over the summer. Um, and what's interesting about reading the book. Have you read the book? 
I have not, so I would okay. love to hear your your okay. reaction to that. The book and the movie are I, they tell the exact same story, but structurally and in focus, they are two very different things. Um, in, in ways that I think make the movie more resonant and work better than if he had done a straight adaptation of the story, which he was going to do. Um, the story actually focuses most on the FBI agent played by uh, Jesse Plemons here. And this was one of the first cases of the FBI. Uh, And they came down after there had been all these murders and he very methodically brought together a team of agents and, you know, spent some time in the town and figured out what was going on, what what these murders were all about. Um, And that's all in the movie, but it's pushed to the side Uh, The focus instead is on this marriage and this relationship between a nephew and his uncle. And what's very interesting is it goes from becoming what could have been a white savior movie, right? The FBI rides in, solves the crime, saves the day, builds their legend, um, to now it is a movie about the horrific nature of white supremacy, um, just the evils that white men have done. Um, there is no coincidence that there are several references in this movie to also the uh, terrorist attacks in Tulsa, um, the, the Black Wall Street. I mean, they bring that up several times. Um, there is a sequence that isn't in the book, but where um, Leonardo DiCaprio's character walks down the street at a parade and just casually shakes hands with a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. I mean, this is about white people being unable to accept that other people can do well, that other people can have what they don't and using their power and influence to manipulate, to get that from them. And it's a very, the book paints it as a very horrific crime, but here it sticks a little bit more because there is this element of betrayal that the movie delves into a little bit more by fronting that, uh, that marriage, which I think is fascinating my my favorite part of the movie is the relationship between dicaprio's character and lily gladstone's character and that marriage that like you said you can't like how much of this is real how much does even he think it's real but he's been manipulated and at the end of the movie you still don't know there are there are levels of self-denial and blindness to this character that i think are portrayed very well um i i really liked this it reminded me that I don't think anyone is making movies about how greed and crime are woven into America's DNA better than Scorsese's doing it. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, he, you know, you ask, you ask the, you know, the person who doesn't watch many movies, what they think of Scorsese, he's the gangster director, which is not true. He's made gangster movies, but they're a very small portion of a very long filmography. Yes. He has been very fascinated in depravity in greed, in just the evil that people do and why they do it. Um, and I think this this fits right in line with Wolf of Wall Street and Casino and Goodfellas as a movie about just America's DNA being infused with violence and greed. It, it, it's it's really good. I, it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's almost disappointing because when Irishman came out, we raved about the Irishman. We picked it as our best movie of the year. I don't know where this ends on my year end of year list. There are still two months to go, and there's a lot I like. I can't conceive of this not being on my top 10 list, not being somewhere high on that top 10 list. And I almost feel disappointed that I can't come in and say, well, he whiffed this one. <laughs> you know, it's it's Martin Scorsese. He makes good movies. He makes good movies very well. And um, one thing I that you brought up that I walked away from this thinking is, his depiction of violence has changed uh, with this and the Irishman. Um, it, it no longer has kind of that vicarious thrill. It's ugly and sad and just it's blunt. Like there are several sequences in yeah. this movie where violence just happens. It's not exciting. It's not thrilling. It's not even scary. It just happens. There are also some sequences that are just some of the most disturbing shots of the aftermath of violence I've seen. But then there's also just sequences where characters just die. It just flashes from one scene to up another character's dead, up another person's dead. And it just, it feels like this matter of fact, like 
cursed thing. This is just going to keep happening, going to keep happening. And it reminded me of how he would portray the deaths in uh, The Irishman with with also the uh, interstitials on the screen yes. saying how he died. And it's it's really walking away from this thing that he's been accused of, I would say, unfairly, which is that he glorified violence. Um, I think he always he was often very skilled at showing why it, we were attracted to it and why it was, you know, why, why it kind of gave us a thrill to watch it. But I think there was always an understanding that these were not characters to emulate. Whereas here, it's just blunt and ugly. And that's the point. Yes. Yes. I, 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 there are major Goodfellas vibes here. And not because it has the same tone as Goodfellas, but because Robert De Niro's character here is, has a lot of Jimmy Conway in him. <laughs> There's a lot of that Goodfellas character here. Uh, and I want to talk about how great De Niro is in this. Yes. Yes. Cause I think it's, I, it's the last, I don't know how many years, call it 10. You know, De Niro has seemed old on screen. He's seemed old. Uh, mm-hmm. Not that he's ever been bad, but you're like, wow, you're, you are leaning into being an old guy at this point, And that must be what you are. And, you know, he's not someone who ever actually reveals himself in interviews. So we have no reason to think otherwise, but to see this where like, he could be 60. He could be 20 years younger. Like I don't, mm-hmm. that character can't be much older than 60 no. at the beginning of the movie. Uh, and, and he doesn't seem any older than 60. The voice sounds strong. Uh, and it's what made me realize, oh yeah, he's, you know, arguably the finest actor alive in the last 10 years. Guess what? Those are all choices. <laughs> De Niro's always making choices about what to do with his body and his voice. We take this for granted. We don't think about it. This is a film to remind you how truly magnificent De Niro is and how he is still a singular and towering American actor. Well, the character he plays is so charismatic too. Like he, and he is like the, if you read the book, like this was the grandfather of the community, right? He was, he was the guy who everyone went to because they trusted him. He gave money back to them. He took care of the community and the whole time there's more going on behind those eyes than he would let on. And I'm so used to Robert De Niro being um, old wasn't what came to mind, but he is often very quiet in movies these days. His characters are like, if you look at the Irishman, that's a character who it hurts him to talk pretty much Um, that he's an aloof character in that. But here he is. He's funny. He's charismatic. And the more charismatic he gets, the more, evil he feels the more dangerous he feels um he he's really good this is this is really good work by him i really like dicaprio in this um it, i think i'm finally reaching the point where i do see him as an adult um <laughs> he's so okay. and i mean this has been this has been I, I mean i've accepted it for the last 10 years or so but i had a hard time for a while accepting DiCaprio as someone who is over the age of 18. And it might just be that I associate with Titanic. He has kind of that baby face. Um, but here he, he feels older. He feels grizzled is a good way to put it. But I don't know of many people who do self-loathing as well as he does. Um, <laughs> there, There is a portion in this movie where he, you could just tell, he hates himself. He absolutely hates every position he's put himself in yeah and he looks ready to collapse on himself he he sits in a chair at one point and it looks like he's gonna implode he just hates himself so much um and then there's another scene where he has to he has the choice to come clean about something and i'm gonna tread lightly because it's near the end of the movie it's it's his opportunity to open up and be clean about something and at first I was reading that as, oh, he's not going to come clean. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized he doesn't know whether there's something to come clean about or not. He has he has deluded himself so much and deceived himself so much. He doesn't want to fess up to what might be the truth. And it's also just a lot of really good lip acting in that scene. <laughs> yes. 
Yes, I, I I concur on the remarkable lip acting in that scene. And I sound like I'm giving De Niro a very hard time. I, I agree. He's he's very good here. I I I have I've I've had no problem thinking of De Niro or sorry, as DiCaprio as an adult post departing. I think that's the movie that is the last one to take advantage of his baby face in really strong ways. I think after that okay. he's been mostly an adult. Uh, I, I don't, th- and it's, and you're right. It is interesting. Uh, you talking about this made me realize this doesn't trade on that for him. It, it, it's not, he's not a callow youth in this movie, which is what it would have been played as 15 years ago. Right. If he mm-hmm. could play this part, this is him trying to make himself physically uglier <laughs> yeah and physically unappealing. And he is, it's there's conversations in the movie about how handsome he is. And I'm like, Really? He's he's gross. Really? Is he? He's, yeah. not, he's not handsome in this movie. Not that he's ugly, but he's not handsome. He looks demented and 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 uh, wounded much of the time, quite frankly, and not in a not <laughs> not not in a way that makes you want to take care of him. In a way that makes you want to run away from him. Uh, maybe that's part of my weird my my failure to fall in love with the movie for the first three hours the first time i saw it i i there, maybe it's something in that character and i don't want to i'm not blaming dicaprio for this i'm not blaming anybody i'm just trying to understand why i had this reaction to it uh but uh and but for me boy this this the first half of this movie right lives or dies on lily gladstone right She's who so is good. yes who has been a remarkable actress for a few years. If you've never seen certain women, the Kelly Riker film, Oh, pause this, go watch that. I, I think it was on prime for a while. I hope it's still there. Um, it's a really good film and she's absolutely stunning in it uh, doing. And that's it. And that film will get you used to her style, which where she is just so, just so natural. Mm-hmm. She truly underplays everything. Uh, and to the point that like going into this year, looking at all the movies, I thought, okay, well, that's going to be a big, t- they're going to big time push for this for Oscars. And the only one until I see it, the only one I think for sure is in the bag is Lily Gladstone will win best supporting actress. It just feels like that's right for a variety of reasons. I'm sure she's very good in it. On top of that, you know, it's going to look good from a inclusion standpoint. The Oscars will like that story. It feels like that's part of why the movie was made in the first place. And then I see the movie and I realize that, oh, I have to rearrange this because not only is the movie not that movie, this is not the this is not the movie you think it is if you think this is the, oh, Oscar bait liberal do-gooder movie. Mm-hmm. That's what this is. This is another beast entirely. And on and going along with that, Lily Gladstone gives a performance that has no big hook. Like all the scenes that you expect to be the scene you're going to see when they announce her name at the Oscars. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what scene it is because they're all so quiet. They're all so quiet. Uh, she draws you in. And it is great to watch. She's the one character in the movie of the, of the three main characters Four, if you throw in Jesse Plemons, who's also very good in the movie. Yes. Uh, uh, she's the one who doesn't talk. She yeah. just is. And she is capable of expressing so much with so little. And even to the point that when she does talk, her voice carries so much. Like when she is sarcastic, it is cutting and it's not much. She doesn't have to put a lot of juice on that for that to cut. Uh, it's what makes the, you know, the beginning of their relationship so much. It's mm-hmm. the most enjoyable. They are the most enjoyable scenes in the movie is to watch her be drawn to him while at the same time seeing all of this damage and seeing I don't know if this is a good idea or not, but slowly falling for him. Uh, boy, she sells that. I believe she thinks he's handsome, even if I don't think he's handsome. She has two points in the movie where she has to use the word incompetent. Um, and it has to do with being able to access money from her funds because there were caretakers put in charge of the natives. And that's all in the book as well. But 
the way she delivers that and the look in her eyes, it is so loaded. Yeah. What she's saying, what she feels about saying that, what the truth of that is. Uh, I, I mean, it's delivered so well and it's not overplayed. Like it's like you said, it's all in her eyes. Uh, she has the sequence where her and DiCaprio kind of have, I, I don't want to call it their first date, but it's their first time alone in her house. Yeah. And it's not a sequence that's overplayed or romantic or manipulative. It is simply her kind of putting up with him and teaching him how to sit with her. And yeah. it works so well at establishing the relationship those characters have. And you have to be able to sell that this relationship has something real there in order for the movie to be as complex as it can get. Um, because there is a version of this movie that is not three and a half hours long where everyone is a surface level monster or a victim. Yeah. And it doesn't understand these relationships. Um, it doesn't understand the dynamics of this town where the evil going on is not just the people who are in on a conspiracy, but the white people who just don't care that their native neighbors are dying. Um, yeah. And you don't have that in a two hour movie. Like I, I, I've been hearing a lot of people say, well, it's three and a half hours. I don't know if I can sit through that. It, it needs to be three and a half hours. <laughs> like I, I, it didn't feel too long for me. Um, the Irishman's what a tick shorter than this. The well, um, Irishman's a tick longer, actually. Oh, is it? Okay. Yes, this is. I think five minutes shorter than the Irishman. I rewatched the Irishman last. Really? <laughs> See, and I yeah. think I, this is not a knock on the Irishman, which again we picked the best movie of twenty nineteen. It is intended that the Irishman feel long, that you feel the passage of time. That movie to me felt its length. This one moves really well. Like the pacing on this is really good. Like I did not feel like I was sitting there overly long. Um, be- there's just a lot going on behind this between under the surface of this movie. Interesting. I don't think I shared that. I I don't share that reaction. I didn't the first time anyway. Seeing the movie, I this feels longer to me. comparatively for me the Irishman moves the Irishman has so much plot there's so much happening there's so much giant turnover in what is happening in the Irishman you know we spend 20 minutes of him falling with the mob and then we spend 20 minutes with him uh you know uh hunting down Joey Gallo and then we spend 20 minutes you know there's there are incidents that keep it going this is this tone that just stays you know, there isn't this, this. There aren't surprises here. You know, it, this is not about a plot development. This is, like you said, watching these characters, and that's as I was saying. For me, I was I was very aware that this is this is long, and not not in a bad way. I'm not saying it's boring, mm-hmm. not at all. No, long is not bad necessarily. It, right. This does not like I was saying. This is a this is a very serious movie. <laughs> yeah. This is not about this is not about you killing your time. This is not about uh this is not about being seduced by anything. This is you're like you're saying this is not about finding out uh, enjoying people being bad and then mm-hmm. realizing oh we shouldn't be doing that. It's not and, even it, it's not even so if you read the book the book is a mystery. The book is very much no one knows what's going on. The FBI has to come and figure this out. This movie is very open about who's involved from yeah. the start. And that's kind of what also makes it unsettling is how open it was acknowledged. Um, yeah. And, and no one cared. And it's not about the fact. And as I read someone else talking about this too, it's not even the fact that they're good at what they do. Like, like DiCaprio's character is really bad at some of the things he's asked to do but because they have the power they can get away with this which is even more chilling and even more american um (laughs) god i I really like this uh the the score for this too like i just love that that yeah it reminded me of the breaking bad score for some reason the the breaking bad theme (laughs) just that thrumming bass going through everything like just like a heartbeat yeah, it is. Uh, you know, Robbie Robertson has scored every Scorsese film since The Last Waltz, right? Or since post-Raging Bull, right? Because Raging Bull used all classical music. There was no original score there, I don't believe. Um, 
that score is the best work of Robertson's film scoring career. Uh, fitting tribute as he passed away weeks before the film opened. And uh, it's nice to, I was waiting to see when the uh, dedication would come <laughs> in the closing credits. I was curious how upfront it would be because Scorsese and Robertson were very close. They were very good friends. Uh, and it comes now in you, a very appropriate place. Okay. But, I was going to say you sat through the credits. I had to get out and uh, get home to the kids, but so you, sat I did it. Okay. It comes uh, well before the very end but it's not right up front, which is exactly where it should be. Is there anything else to say about that? Like, well, you actually, you did touch on Jesse Plemons character. Um, and and I, I really liked him as well. I always like Jesse Plemons. There's, there's very few times I don't like him. <laughs> um, what could have really happened with this role? If you didn't have someone who could play it that well, is it would just be a one dimensional, you know, the white hat rides into town and solves everything. Because if you read the book, Tom White is just portrayed as this. He he's just a good guy, and the movie that's how he portrays him. But I, it feels genuine. Jesse Plemons can play genuine gentleness really well. Yes, and he's really good. Well, like Lily Gladstone, Plemons underplays everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everything all the time to the point that I think it's a problem sometimes. <laughs> I need him to give a little <laughs> sometimes. Um, and I agree. I really like him. That's a good problem. I'm okay with that. Um, but he is, you know, he is the one. It, it, he and uh, De Niro's character, as you said, is so charming and so frightening. And we watch him charm and frighten everybody in the movie. And the two people he can't, the, he, the two people he can't frighten are Lily Gladstone's character and Jesse Plemons' character, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he, or, or, uh, at least uh, they're not scared of him. Uh, Lily, because Lily Gladstone's character, because she doesn't seem to know better. And Jesse Plemons' character, because he doesn't care. He's here to solve this. <laughs> yeah. I think he has his suspicions, but he doesn't care. He's not going to be spooked. He's an FBI guy, even when that doesn't mean a whole lot just yet but that's what he is. Uh, yes, it's a great character and he's fabulous in it. Again, like Lily Gladstone doesn't have a scene I can point to, to go, this is why this is a great performance. It's not that kind of performance. They're not those kind of actors. They are actors that draw you in. I lean closer to the screen when Jesse Plemons is talking. <laughs> I'm um, interested. I'm interested by that face. I want to know what is he thinking? I can't quite figure it out. And I am fascinated by it. Lily Gladstone does the same thing. I will say one one actor who does not underplay is Brendan Fraser. Uh, oh. <laughs> this is our third, our second historical three hour historical epic of the year that has three best actor Oscar winners in it. What are the other two? I don't know if I've seen many three hour. Oh wait, 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 wait. No, just two, no, just one. You'll one other one. This is the okay. second. Okay, okay. Oppenheimer. Other... Oppenheimer's oh, got God three bless. best actor Oscar winners. I don't forget in about Oppenheimer. Yeah. <laughs> Seven, uh, six and a half hours between them. Six Best Actor Oscar winners. I had totally forgotten Brendan Fraser was in this, uh, and then he shows up, and I'm like, "Oh yeah, Brendan Fraser in the, is in this." And then he talks, and I'm like, "Oh yeah, Brendan Fraser's in this." And, and uh, then John Lithgow acts rings around him. Yes, yeah, it's fabulous. Uh, um, yeah, but you know what? We I watched The Mummy with my kids recently. I'll, I'll <laughs> oh, be very happy to see Brendan Fraser get work. Um, <laughs> I mean. Gosh, I, one of us. <laughs> the thing I keep, the thing I keep coming back to. I don't know how much more we have to say without delving into spoilers. I will say, I do think the final ten minutes of the movie, really, like you said, it it works. It's a sledgehammer um, that has something to say about what happens to stories like this. Yes, um, which is something that is in the book as well, uh, and I think it's handled very well. I will let other people discover it for themselves because it's a very powerful moment. Um, the thing I was left thinking about, and we've, we've talked about this before. Martin Scorsese is 80 years old. And in the last 10 years, he has done the Wolf of Wall Street, Silence, the Irishman, and this. Yeah. And that would be if one filmmaker had four of these movies, these four movies, they'd be an all timer. And he's doing it in retirement age. And he was like already these, an all timer before this, these. 
This yeah. is not this and no shade thrown on Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood is very famously still making movies. He's got his one, you know, he gets takes his one take, goes back and has his sandwich, cranks them out every year. This is muscular filmmaking, though. This is this is very tough filmmaking. And it's why I'm so happy every time he has a movie out. Yeah. Um, He's 80. His father was 80 when his father passed away. His mother was 84 when she passed away. There are very few directors who ever get to make a grand final statement. He's made four of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that doesn't, that's never happened. It's never happened. I am, uh, we are, I know this sounds incredibly Pollyanna-ish. I have said it before and I will say it again. I truly consider myself lucky to be alive in an era in which this man is making movies and I get to see new work by Martin Scorsese. And I don't know how much longer we have that. I hope another 10 years <laughs> and hopefully one or two more movies. I don't know who else is going to give him money. <laughs> I don't, I don't know where, I don't know who's going to fund the next 300, $400 million project because by all accounts, this production ballooned way out of control. Money wise, yeah, very expensive. Apple has uh, money. Um, he, you know, he's burned through all the streamers who could afford to give him that kind of money at this point. Um, and if he doesn't, that's our loss. But boy, we have these four films and all of the ones that came before. Oh, he lucky has. Us. He's, lucky he's, us. He's talked about working with the Vatican for another Jesus movie. And I am just yeah. like crossing my finger. I'm like, do that. I would love to see that. I, yeah, do that, man. Um, Can it not be a musical? It... <laughs> Was it going to be a that trailer? Have you seen no. that trailer? No. Oh, there's a Jesus movie this this Christmas with it's a musical. It's an original. Antonio Banderas is in it. Oh, I thought you'd oh, know about this, Chris. Oh, damn it. I'm going to have to watch that. I'm going to have to watch that and write about oh, that. Oh. Oh. <laughs> oh. I, I'm I going love to... Antonio Banderas. I love Christmas. I don't think I can do this one, Chris. <laughs> I, I do I do like Antonio Banderas singing, though. I love Antonio love antonio banderas maybe i can just watch the antonio banderas part somehow just just rent puss in boots the last wish you'll get your great or, antonio banderas performance or watch every Dovar film he's in that's good does that's he good. sing in those because he sings in puss in boots that's true he does not sing in those that's very good <laughs> it's that's a good point you're right watch all those and puss in boots too <laughs> so perry we've come to the end of our discussion about killers of the flower moon it's coming out on apple tv plus I am assuming, though, our recommendation is go see this on a big screen. Always. That's always our recommendation for everything. Yes. Don't wait. I feel like this one in particular. This one in particular, not just because it's Martin Scorsese. This is a big, sweeping movie. Like, you can can watch Flora and Son at home. Like, like you will, and your your experience won't be ruined. If that's the only way you can see it. It's fine. It's been pulled from most theaters by now, anyway. This one's <laughs> gonna have this one's gonna have a nice little opening from Apple. Go see it in theaters. Don't don't wait until it comes to Apple TV Plus. It's really good. Go see it because it's great, not because you yeah. need to see it on a big screen. Any movie's better on a big screen. No movie improves on a small screen, right? They just get they're just they're just that's fine experience again. There's nothing wrong with them. But if you love movies, go to the movies. Yes. Yes. Um, do you have anything else to say on this movie? See it. See yeah. it. And I too want to, I, I, I maybe may, can we come back in like a month and like do a mini episode where we just break down that last sequence? Cause I really, really want to talk about how great it is. And it's hard to talk about how great it is without feeling like you are spoiling the movie. That might be a good mini episode. That might be a good mini episode in like a month or so uh, to talk about that. Cause it it's, is, it's something. Yeah. It's well, an achievement it's... to recontextualize what you have just seen mm-hmm. in a way that isn't pulling the rug out from under you, but is, oh, there's also all this to think about. And yeah. that's just like, no, Scorsese can do that. I don't think anybody else can. Fincher maybe. Fincher might be the only other one who could do this, who could pull that off to that level. Uh, but he didn't. Marty did. Until the killer ends the same way in, in about a month. <laughs> This who knows? Who knows? I don't read a lot of mangas. Who knows? Could be. 
I'm I'm really excited. We're heading into the uh, very exciting time of the year, and uh, I think we're gonna have a lot to talk about on this show. Um, plus, we still need to get around to uh, shortcuts. Shortcuts needs to happen. It will happen. But uh, we will also. I I know we have screenings on the book for May December coming up, so that so might be another excited. one to talk about. So, so but until we get to that point, Perry, where can people reach you? You can hear me every Friday morning on the Lucy Ann Lance show on WLBY in Anna Arbor. You can occasionally hear me at the Cathode Ray Mission show. Uh, I think we are doing, we are gearing up for a whole Todd Haynes episode in December uh, in honor of May, December coming out. And that's usually where you'll find me. Facebook, you can always find me at Facebook. I don't know why still, but you can. You cannot find me in any other of the popular social media places. Chris, where can people read your excellent work? Oh, gosh, I'm all over. Uh, so I review the new releases for at Cinema Nerds with a Z. Uh, I will have a review of Killers of the Flower Moon this week on there. Uh, I have my newsletter, which is criticisms.substack.com. And you can read my thoughts about Silver Bullet, which is just as good as Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I, ha- I have a lot of stuff coming up there, uh, and you can find me on most social media: Blue Sky Threads, Facebook, Instagram at Criticisms. I'm also on Twitter, but I'm I'm deleting that as soon as I get the uh, the guts. So I'm not even going to share my handle on that one. Um, <laughs> find me on the other ones. There's good stuff on there. Um, if you want a uh, if you want invite code to Blue Sky, hit me up. I have a few of those as well. We'll be back in a few weeks. I don't know what we're going to be talking about, but it'll be good. See you, Perry. Take care, Chris.